Heaven. I'm just wondering what's in God's uh, computer this morning for us. You know, so I'm going to go ahead and pull up a screen. Uh, let's see. Screen of Psalm 101. Let's see, let's, let's see what's in there for us. I will sing of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who, f- who fall away. I shall th- it shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know, I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Now I think maybe in this particular psalm, God's message to us is not just that King David feels this way about about the goodness of God and the wickedness and evil of evildoers. But I believe in this poem, in, in this poetry that we've just read, that the person really changes about midway through from King David to the Lord God, the creator of, of all things. Because he begins, I believe God is actually saying, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I'm going to destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, I won't endure him. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land, and they that dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he shall serve me. But he who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. So God has standards, and those standards can be encouraging to us, but they can be scary to us too. Because we know firsthand the feelings and the impulses of people who are clearly wicked. We have a feeling for what it is to tell a lie to have some critical or unpleasant, maybe even untrue thing to say about our neighbor. And to do it in a careful way so that it doesn't bounce back on us. Right? We know all too well the, the perversity of the heart that is intolerable to God and will be destroyed out of the land and will not get to dwell in God's house. 
So when we look at it from, from the perspective of what's not acceptable, I'd say in many cases, in spite of the fact that we know that God is full of mercy and goodness, there's a part of us that knows we have a problem and that we need a physician. See, so what feels bad on the one hand and almost discouraging and maybe slightly depressing, if you're like me, where I've you know, kind of lived life always on the borderline of depression since I was a teenager, if you know what it's like to feel discouraged or depressed, then you can, you can rejoice that that's a good thing because you have a, a, an awareness of your need. What did Jesus say? That only those who are sick need a physician. If you didn't feel slightly discouraged at the prospect of, of identifying with the wicked and knowing that that's intolerable to a holy God and that they will be destroyed out of the land, if you didn't feel a little bit sick about that, you would not know that you need help and that you need the Savior Jesus. So what I want to tell you about are three very real persons, and I'm going to ask you what you think about these three persons who come to see the physician. So if you want to make it poetic and the physician is Jesus, then that's good. That's even better. But just picture three persons who at least know they have a need for a physician. They're not out there thinking, there's nothing wrong with me. I do good. I don't need anybody. I never go to the doctor. I don't have to take any pills. And I don't even have to obey uh, health principles. I just do whatever I want. And I do just fine. Okay? These three people are not in that category. These three people know that they've got some medical problems. Medical slash psychological or psychiatric problems. Enough to go to the physician's office. And here are the three people. I'm going to describe them to you. The first person has been there before, and she's a 61-year-old, modest married woman with, with children and with grandchildren. And a couple of years ago, she found out that she had diabetes. And just like all her brothers and sisters, there's at least one, one or two that have already died from diabetes, complications. One's blind. There's another one or two that have had amputations. And she's the last of the siblings, something like seven or nine of them, to get diabetes at, her, at age 60. And, uh, and she's about in a panic. She's, she's really upset. And so she comes to the doctor's office, and the doctor, uh, unlike sometimes happens, spends plenty of time with her explaining to her the principles of healthy living, and particularly healthy eating. And how even now that she has diabetes, which means her pancreas is so tired and sick that it can't produce enough insulin, that even at this time, her pancreas can recover and get well enough to take care of her insulin needs for the rest of her life. 
if she were otherwise meant to be a healthy 95-year-old woman, she can live at least another 35 years without worrying about diabetes cutting short her life. And she really listens. He tells her the eight foods to never eat, the one other substance, which isn't a food, alcohol to avoid 100%. And she wants, and she, first of all, she believes that he's a good physician and that he knows what he's talking about. And she decides that she is going to do everything he says. And as it turns out, she's one of these unusual people that you don't find very often who can do exactly what she decides to do. I mean, they are few and far between, but this is one of them. And, she does, and, and, and it turns out, down the road, after she does all of these things and gets completely rid of her diabetes disease, she has the condition, but not the disease. In other words, if she goes back to eating those eight foods again, she'll get the disease back. She has a condition, a weakness in her pancreas, but as long as she follows the rules, embraces that change of life, the disease goes away. Her blood sugars are normal. Her A1C, which is a measurement of how sticky or thick the blood is, is below six, and therefore her blood's flowing like a normal person. And she's completely free of disease. And it turns out, when she comes back to the physician's office, the physician is kind of curious about how it is that she seems to be able to do so well. Because after all, people have problems even doing what they know is right. Even when there's a big payoff reward versus a bad punishment or you know a bad consequence. Very few people can just do it. So he starts to ask her a few questions. And he says, did your mother and father teach you? Were you raised in such a way that you could do? You have that kind of like natural discipline that you could do whatever you wanted to do? And she says, no, I've just always been like that. Wow. Nobody even taught you to be like that? No, no, I've just always been that way. Um, well, you seem, to be, you seem to be humble and modest. How do you feel about the, the, you said you just went to like three funerals in the last month and they had these like funeral feasts and you very quietly and nicely didn't eat anything, you went home and you ate. But your friends, many of whom have diabetes, you know, after all, it was a party, they ate. But, and so how did you feel about your friends and about these other people that can't seem to, you know, get with the program? Oh, she says, Everybody's different. I've always been able to do like this. Most people can't. And you say, well, do you feel better than them? No. Modest and humble, too. And that's, that's, that's first patient. That's, that's real person. Oh, by the way, did you, do you think that maybe you have discipline because you, like you were raised religious? Like maybe, like maybe it's like you pray? No, 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 don't get it, no, all right, 
Next person. Oh, this is a 55-year-old man. And he, he already knows what he wants. I mean, he has a need. You know what his need is? His need is to stop the horrible smoking of cigarettes that causes him to have racking coughs with horrible phlegm and congestion in his chest. And he has to use inhalers to keep breathing. And uh, he's been going at it for like 35 or 45 years. Actually started when he was a teenager. So he's been going at it for 45 years. He smoked two to three packs of cigarettes a day. He's already smoked about five times as much as it takes to get lung cancer. Hasn't gotten it yet. And, and he's already been spoken to. It's not the first time he's been in to see the physician. The physician told him that the secret of stopping smoking, well, he's already told him the secret is you have to really, 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 really want to. That you can't stop smoking if the real you in here doesn't want to. But you're trying to because it's bad for you. Or somebody said you should. Or you don't want cancer. Or you don't want to have to go on oxygen finally in order to keep breathing. But you know what? He don't want that. What he wants is a drug called Shantix, or you know, C-H-A-N-T-I-X, some brand name, because that's going to help him to do what he really doesn't want to do. And uh, he, he realizes he might be one of the long-term cases. He might need the drug for six to 12 months. That's a long time to finally get to the place to, that you want to do what you should have wanted to do before you got started. And, and you know what? He's so smart, he's such a smart individual that you can't tell him any different from the way he thinks. In other words, even though that doesn't make logical sense, what he's involved in, you can't convince him of it because he already knows that he can do it his way. You know, he's bothered by the new expense of the cigarettes, but he doesn't really want to quit. In fact, when you, when you get him right in the corner, he says, I, well, I like to smoke. Okay, that's, that's, that's person number two. Person number three is a lady, a woman in about, about 50 or 52, something like that, 53. And this lady has a severe pain problems because she has degenerated discs in her back. She has a torn, one or two torn rotator cuffs in her shoulder. She's got sciatica that's so bad she walks with a limp. And her request, the reason she's coming, believe it or not, it's not for all of that because she's come to the conclusion, well, actually, she's reached two conclusions. One, she's going to have to live with this problem for as long as she has to live with it. In other words, she's accepted this amount of suffering in her life. But the other thing, the other reason she's not coming for anything that you would think she's coming for is because she's trusting the Lord to heal her in his time. And that's the truth. That's what she expresses, and she knows God's promises and scriptures, and she's absolutely trusting 
She's believing, in fact, she believes that God will heal her in his time and take these problems away. And the only reason she's coming is she needs, she's unemployed and has been looking for a job. And as soon as they see her walking in with a cane, it's over. And what she, what she realizes is that the cane freaks them out. And they don't know what she's got. Leprosy, uh, you know, in other words, they don't know what that represents. AIDS, and there's no job available to a woman that walks in in her 50s with a cane. And all she wants is a note that says she has a, a musculoskeletal issue, you know, like a leg problem, a leg pain problem that requires the use of a cane for ambulation. She's thinking with that note, she can get the employers, the prospective employers, to just give her a more fair look. And, and, and she's got problems in her life at least equal to what you and I have. She's got a son, a, a young son, who she raised to be a loving person, who married a woman who's full of hate, hates everybody, hates her son, hates her mother-in-law, and hates everybody else. And who may be performing satanic rituals, not proven yet, satanic rituals on the, the grandchild that's only about 14 months old. And the little 14-month-old runs to greet grandma, and she says, and as, she, as he wraps his, his little arms around grandma, he takes this sort of like furtive look, worried look at mom. You know, you, you can figure out what that, imagine, as she says, imagine, only 14 months old, and he already knows that. Okay, so she's not, but you know what? This woman is happy. She's at peace. She's rejoicing. She's talking about God's goodness. She's quoting the wonderful, precious promises in the scripture in God's computer. Because she's trusting God to save not only her son, but that grandchild as well. And she's even praying for the wicked woman. So, if, if you're the physician, and you see these three different patients walk in, all recognizing their need, what would you think of each one of those? Maybe more specific, or maybe more relevant would be, which one of those three would you rather be? I see one that, even though she's a little bit older, doesn't really have any medical problems at this point in time. She was able to do exactly what she had to do. And she's a pleasant, humble, likable person. Could live to be 95 years old. But you know what she expressed to me? That's all she's shooting for. That's all she expects. 
That's all she's hoping for is 95 to, I actually said 100 to her. She's, she, all she can hope for and expect is 100 years. So another, another 39 years of life on planet Earth as a pleasant person. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Now the other guy, I don't know, maybe you identify with him. <laughs> just, give me a, just give me a prescription. I can do this. I'll do it my way. Well, yeah, so what if I need to take it for six months or 12 months? Eventually, I might get to the point where I really want to do what I'm doing. I got plenty of time. I said, what if it's too late? What if, you, what if, you, what if you're like my dad? My father got uh, prostate cancer when he was about 56. He immediately stopped smoking. Immediately. No problem. Started taking vitamins and eating better, and stop, you know, stop making a big deal when my mother wanted him to eat his vegetables for supper. All right? And, and, he, and he had no problem stopping smoking, and he's happy. He's happy emotionally and, and, and mentally, and, and uh, physically he feels better, and he's doing this for about six weeks, and he goes to the urologist for his follow-up examination, since they've already proven that he has the cancer by biopsy. And he says, hey, and my, he told me this story, so this is, and he, this is probably almost perfect quote. He says, hey, doc, guess what? And the, guy, the doctor says, what? And he says, I stopped smoking. Happy. I stopped smoking. And the doctor says, what the hell did you do that for? I didn't tell you to do that. There's no proven connection between Cigarette smoking and prostate cancer? Implicate, and this was in the 80s, and there wasn't a proven connection at that time. There is now, by the way. He didn't really say anything wrong except for what he did to the patient. He implied, what are you, some kind of wimp? What are you, afraid of a little cigarette? You think you got prostate cancer? You think you need to stop smoking? So what did he do on his way home from the doctor's office? He bought a pack of cigarettes. And you know, if you've ever been trapped by any vice that you're free of now, you know that if you go back to it even a little, you've you're been had. So 10 years later, he gets a cancer that you don't live with, with that gets you fast. And, and, I had a t and, and he, people were telling him that he might live. I mean, they're giving him the impression he might live another year or two years with this terminal cancer. And I, I'd already seen him. I'd spent some time. I had to go home. Um, so I'm calling him long distance. And I said, Dad, you know you got a terminal uh, condition. How much time do, you, do, they, do they say you have, you know? He says, oh, maybe a year, maybe two. And I say, Dad, I don't think they've been telling you the truth, or maybe you're not asking the right question. Because knowing what I know about your condition, you'd be lucky to have three months to live. And you know, that's the generation, maybe you're familiar with this generation, you don't tell them anything. I mean, I, I said, you know, so I'm on, I'm on shaky ground here. And I say, Dad, you know the reason I'm telling you this is not because I'm trying to scare you or be disrespectful but I just think it's important that you know because I think that you need to be ready when the time comes. And you know, I'm trying to help my father find salvation. 
Now I'll tell you that what I what I meant to tell you was the the part about the smoking. Nobody ever mentioned smoking to him again, and certainly not me. And he lived three months, and the last three months of his life he stopped smoking. And he was an intelligent man. He knew that it wasn't probably even going to get him an extra day of life. And I've asked some of my patients, why do you think he did that? And some of them, I think, have the same idea I do. Because he was saying to himself, and maybe to God, I should have done this 10 years ago and not allowed myself to find an excuse to go back. I should have not been so proud or so arrogant or so not humble or grateful that I would go back to that because I probably wouldn't be right where I am today if I had just stay, stayed quit. You see what I'm saying? And you know, of all things, of all things, probably four months later or six months later, my mother tells me, who's, un, who's unconverted at that point, and maybe, maybe forever, I don't know, she tells me that at the wake, my father's overnight nurse came, sat down next to her, and told her that he asked all the right questions about salvation. And that she gave him all the answers he needed. And she was the last person he spoke to. I forget what her name was, Bessie, or she was from the Caribbean. And she, he said, Bessie, if you have anything to say to me, you better say it to me now because I'm going, going, gone. And that was his last conscious moment. So I have a great hope that my father is saved. But it's very interesting that that man stopped smoking the last three months of his life because it was the right, I'd say, because it was the right thing to do. You see? And he was basically, and so I told this, this patient number two, person number two, don't be like my father. Don't wait till it's, it's too late, because if you thought for a moment that it was too late, where you were weak, you'd suddenly be strong. I said, right now you're playing with it. You're playing. You don't want to make a decision to get rid of this from your life because you think you've got time to play. That's what it amounts to. What would you like to be like the third patient? who's willing to live with whatever problem she's got and give praise and honor to the Lord and love him with all her heart and love other people. You know, she told me, she said, I can't help but love other people. She said, I can't help it. My son hates, hates Hawaii and he hates the people in Hawaii and she says, I just, all I could say to him is, son, you're a good man. That's what she told, told him. And I said, yeah, what you were telling him was what he could be if he ever gives his heart to the Lord. You were saying what you could. So let's look at today's scripture, though, on the subject. Because no matter which one of these people you feel most identified with, I don't want to cram the third person down your throat, because you may not be there. But you know you need a physician. And in Romans 8.1, the physician tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation 
to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, that's a choice. It always boils down to a choice. You know? And yeah, it could be scary to be person number two. If you identify with person, if I identify with, and to some extent I want to admit to you that when it comes to eating sugar and eating too much, I identify with person number two. I'm playing. I'm playing around. I think I got more time. I'll have the victory over that sometime in the future. Right? And what it really boils down to is what is the choice? Because Jesus said, I can, you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. You just have to make the choice. You know, with God's Spirit, you can easily be as successful as person number one who just has always been able to do whatever she decided to do. But unlike person number one, you have a hope that making those choices and experiencing that victory is going to lead to eternal life. You know, it's almost, you know, to me, the person number one is like the rich young ruler. I mean, this guy had it together. He did. I'm convinced. He wasn't lying to Jesus. He said, you know, what what do I need to do for eternal life? I, I, I think I got it made. I'm not a bad person. I'm, I'm even humble. I'm even mo- as rich as I am. I'm even modest. I don't feel better than other people. I feel more, I'm, I'm happy to be more privileged. But what, is there anything more that I've got to do? I mean, I really got it together, you know. And Jesus says, "Well, you know, what about the commandments? You know, oh yeah, I follow all of them." Well, you got to do one more thing then. You got to give up that which, which separates you from from loving your brothers and sisters on planet Earth who don't have it together as well as you do. Sell it and give it to the people who need it and then come and follow me. And he's not too happy with that, with that choice, you know? So it's really not good, in my opinion, what do you think? It's not good to be person number one. Not unless person number one can come to a point of recognizing their need for a savior, to realize that we're born in sin no matter how good we look, even, on, even to some extent on the inside as well as on the outside. I was thinking about it. In some ways, there's more hope for person number two. If he ever gets to the place where, I don't know, he gets that lung cancer or he has to get that oxygen or finally he's coughing his head off so much that he... That you know, what was told him by the physician, he finally listens to and makes a, a choice for the right thing, and he's humble enough to make that choice. So I'm just grateful that for each of those persons, there is no condemnation. And that we can just make a decision to be in Christ Jesus. And by just making that decision to be in Christ Jesus, we begin to walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now let's take a look at at that same chapter, uh, verses 2 to 12. You know, it tells us, 
that the law of life in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has made me free. I mean, this is not just getting rid of diabetes or the smoking habit. It has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, you got trouble overcoming, you have trouble having the victory, it's because we're living in the flesh. The flesh cannot overcome sin. But God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then looking down on um, verse 11 and 12, it says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So there's, there's the ultimate cure. There's the ultimate um, resolution of the disease process. And then let's look at Romans uh, 8, 8, uh, 8, 18, right down the page there. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There's no struggle. There's no struggle. There's no... There's no psychiatric or physical problem, no economic problem, no grief, no heartache, and no difficulty that can compare to the glory which shall be revealed to us, or in us, and in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And then verse 28, one of our favorite texts, and we all know, and we know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So the help of, of God's Spirit can work all things out in our lives. There's nothing, there's no burden, there's no guilt, there's no problem that we have that we just can't freely give to God, choosing to serve and love him and be completely free in Jesus. Let's look at our confidence, a little bit more about our confidence. 1 John 5.14. John 5.14. Let's, let's find it. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. 
Now, is it, is it God's will for you to be saved? Is it God's will to finish the work that he started in you? Is it God's will for you to have victory over every besetting sin? Is it God's will for you to be completely fearless in the face of anything that's threatening? Remember, remember Pilate's telling Jesus, don't you know that I have the power to deliver you or to condemn you? And what did Jesus tell him? You don't have any power at all except what my Father has given you. I could, you know, I could pray now and a legion of angels would come and your, your soldiers with their spears would be nothing. Your authority is only the appearance of power. And you know, we're going to be faced with appearances of power. At some point in time, if we live long enough, where they're going to be threatening us the way Pilate was kind of threatening Jesus. You know, you do things our way, we can cut your break. You don't do things our way. And we should remember Jesus' word. You don't have any power except that which is given to you by the Father in heaven, by Father in heaven. Paul and Silas, I realize now, they were singing in the, church, in the jail. It was like a church. They were singing in the, jail, in the prison because they knew this. They said, we're only here because God's allowing us to be here. Whatever, whatever he's going to do, whether it's to deliver us from this prison or to work something else out, we're okay with it. Let's praise the Lord. And they're praising the Lord so sincerely that the other prisoners are just like... And then, and what, what happened, right? God busted, busted them out. In such a magnificent way that the jailers, the jailer and his whole family were converted. They never seen such awesome power and such goodness. So let's take a look at let's take a look at John 14, 14. The reason I love this is because it kind of removes, I like 1414 because. It kind of removes any questions that you've got in your mind. You know, if we ask something according to Jesus' name, if it's the Father's will, then we'll do it. And so, you, to me, that's always been a question. Well, what is the Father's will, you know? Well, we know he wants us to be saved. Does he want to help me out in this situation? Does he want to heal me of what I brought on myself, maybe, or, or whatever? Well, I like the fact that if we reach up with strong faith and we consider ourselves God's child and willing to be his obedient, trusting child, that Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, what? I will do it. That's pretty direct. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And, and, and to understand it in, its, in, in my opinion, to understand it in its context, let's look, let's look what he said just before that. In, in 14, verse, verse 12, for example, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, 
the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So, I mean, you think about it. Was Jesus afraid of anything? I don't think so. Perfect love casts out fear. We can be just like Jesus. We can do the works that Jesus did if we're as sold out in our loyalty and submission to God as Jesus was to the Father. And the only thing that's standing between that reality and us today is us making that choice, that decision. How many people really want to make that decision for eternity today? Praise God. Praise God. Almost everybody. And let's look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And again, I don't think you have to wait around. I mean, I'm glad that I've been in this church as long as I have and have come kind of in a natural way to, to love you, to love each person here. But the, what I'm reading here is that if you choose to love, God puts that love in you because you chose to love your brothers and sisters. It's a choice. You know, we can't manufacture love anyway. You know? I, I kind of feel like, like patient number, person number three who said, you know, I love people and I can't help it. Praise God. You know, it's the power of God. You know, you can't help it. So, I mean, the more we get like Jesus, the easier it is to love, but the more we just choose to love, the power of love is there. Let's look at John 17.3. Some of you have memorized this. I learned a little, a little song, so that's why I know it. This is life eternal. Let's look it up. John 17.3. Because this ties in with the last scripture, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So, to know God is eternal life. To know God is to love God. And as it tells us in 1 John, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. To know God is to love God. To know God is to love your brothers and sisters in Christ and every other person out there, including some that will never come into the fold. You know, Jesus loved Judas, and Judas betrayed him. God wants us to love everyone the way he loves them. Let's take a look at John 
17, 17. We're, we're right there in John 17. I love these uh, verses that are like 14, 14. You know, John 14. Here's John 17, 17. And what a tremendous, what a tremendous verse it is. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So sanctification is the process of becoming like Jesus in love and character. All those lovely traits of character that even evil people can't help but admire and be attracted to. You know? I mean, there were people that wanted to crucify Jesus, but even the people who crucified Jesus for, for a time were drawn to him. Do you know that? They, rege- they, 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 they were fighting with themselves. They, they wanted to be his disciples, but their, you know, their pride interfered. So Jesus was attractive even to the people who killed him. And to be a real Christian is to be attractive to everyone, even the ones who despitefully use you. So that's, that's beautiful. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So by, by, by asking God to give us a greater love and understanding of his word, he will change us. Jesus' prayer for us. Look at, look at John 17, 20 through 26. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who, be, who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. John, <clears throat> John, uh, 14, uh, John 15, 9 through 11 gives us a little more understanding of that, that, that prayer. Uh, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, all we have to do is will to obey God's commandments, and he will put the desire and the power to obey in us. The same way he puts the love in us. So, Jesus has prayed for all three of those persons, hasn't he? Because he gives everyone the opportunity for salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. What Jesus said he can do, he will do. John 14, 6 tells us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 17, in answer to Philip's question, show us the Father, Jesus said what? Have I been so long with you, Philip, that you have not known me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John three sixteen, we all know, 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What? Now, it's funny. He loved the world, but it wasn't the world that he was, I mean, in some context, it says he, he came to save the world. But it was whomever believeth in me. You see, the person is the individual. Whoever believeth in me should not perish, but have eternal life. And look at, remembering the first scripture, Romans 8, 1, God did not, you know, God, uh, there is no condemnation uh, in Christ Jesus. Well, look at John 3.17, right after 3.16, on the subject of condemnation. For God did not send his son into the world, what? To condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk according to, who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And one of our favorite texts, uh, 1 John, I'll give you the right number here, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, con- to what? Forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us pray. Dear Father, we're so grateful for your abundant mercy, for your abundant power, for your abundant love, for for your willingness and complete ability to to sanctify us, to change us, to make us uh, cured from from the bigger disease of sin, and to give us that uh, wonderful uh, reward of of, uh, healing, of eternal life, and life with you in Christ. So... Jesus, thank you that, that you are pleading on our behalf, that you're, that you're uh, uh, putting your merits and blood and, and purity mingled with this prayer and presenting it before the Father. We thank you that you're willing to answer all of our prayers directly and to, uh, to give us that which we need to live the Christian life and to save others and love others. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.